0: Welcome to The Greek Current, a podcast by Halk and Kathy Merini. I'm your host, Thanos Davelis. Turkey's President Erdogan has finally made it official, setting the date for elections that many see as existential for Turkey's authoritarian leader. After 20 years of dominating Turkish politics, and given the stakes for Erdogan, there are questions as to how far Erdogan will be willing to go on May 14th to ensure that the results are in his favor and whether there will be a peaceful transition of power. Merve Tahiroglu, the Turkey Program Director at the Project on Middle East Democracy, joins me to look at whether the upcoming elections in Turkey will be free and fair, look at what role the international community and civil society can play to ensure the integrity of the elections, and explore whether Erdogan will be willing to hand over power should he lose. Merve, great to have you back on The Greek Current.
1: Hi, Tano, Thanks for having me.
0: Merve, given the stakes for Erdogan, are these elections going to be free and fair?
1: So the short answer is no, but then I will say some positive things about this. I'm saying they, they won't be free and fair because if you look at the past few elections, uh, whether general elections or local elections or presidential, we have numerous international observer groups saying, including the OSCE, saying that these elections have not been fair. That's largely because of President Erdogan's control directly and indirectly over Turkey's media. Um, About 90% or more of traditional media outlets at this point are controlled by either the government or by business people who are very close to Erdogan and his family. And this control really skews the playing field in favor of the incumbents every time we have a campaign season. Television channels and newspapers do not give not nearly enough space for opposition campaigns during these periods. That in itself makes the campaign season really unfair and the elections really unfair in itself. And also has massive control over Turkey's judiciary and other institutions like the High Election Board, which ultimately, you know, does all the tallying for the votes on Election Day. And they also decide if there has been any fraud, if there has been any issues with the election, if there needs to be a re-election. All of these decisions are quite centralized and because of Erdogan's control over this institution, it's really hard to call the upcoming election in Turkey fair. And that said, the past elections have been deemed largely free. And by that, I think what we mean is that we have not really seen major instances of fraud. There have been instances where it's been recorded that, uh, you know, in certain places, at least the opposition has alleged and, you know, independent observers have alleged that ballot officials there have been, you know, counting votes that shouldn't have been counted in favor of the AKP or Erdogan. For example, if people don't stamp them in the right way or, you know, blank votes have been counted in favor of Erdogan or votes cast in favor of the opposition have been discarded. So there have been instances that have been reported uh, like this before, but largely observer groups have determined that these had very little impact on the ultimate election results. So there hasn't been massive fraud, you know, the way we see in, you know, Syrian elections or Russian elections or anything like that. I do worry that this May 14 elections, we might see even greater instances of fraud or voter manipulation. I think given the stakes for Erdogan, he seems to be quite worried about his chances of actually winning the election. So the chances of fraud happening in this one, I think, are quite large. But then again, there's a lot that Turkish civil society and opposition parties can do to try to prevent that. And I think they're working very hard to ensure that the election can be as free as possible, even if it won't be fair.
0: You brought up the opposition, Merve, and earlier this week, they selected their candidate, Kemal Kilic Many, even some within the opposition, like Meryl Akşener, had hoped it would be another candidate, possibly a Krem Imamoglu, the popular mayor of Istanbul, who appears better on paper. You know, is the opposition playing a weaker hand at a moment when it really needs a win?
1: you know, maybe a few weeks ago, I would have said yes. Personally, I've been very much in favor of also announcing Istanbul Mayor Kremil Momolo as the candidate. He's much more popular, according to opinion polls, than Kemal Kustarolo. He's younger, has just more of that leadership style, the ability to, you know, appeal to a broad segment of voters. The way I explain it to my American friends and colleagues is that, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu is more like President Biden and Imamolo is more like an Obama-like figure. He's just, he's got that thing, that charisma that, that he's able to get undecided voters excited about elections, as we have seen in the 2019 mayoral election. Uh, he did a really, really fantastic job. So I've been, you know, personally rooting for him to be the candidate. But I do think now that College has been announced as a candidate, I'm quite on board with it. And I do see some advantages to this So we have Kılıçdaroğlu running as the main candidate, and then the other heads of the other five opposition parties that are part of the coalition are essentially running as vice presidents. And they have added Istanbul Mayor İmamoğlu and Ankara Mayor Mansur Yavaş, you know, to the ticket unofficially by saying in their declaration that they will be appointed as vice presidents also in some capacity should the opposition win the election. So what this means is that effectively we are looking at an opposition that is running eight candidates or eight people playing an active role in the campaigning. That's what this decision really means. And I think that's a huge advantage for the opposition, actually, because all of these eight people have various strengths and they appeal to different factions of the electorate. So I think if they manage to do the dividing up of the roles in the campaign season among the aides well, and if they are able to keep their unity as each of these eight people are campaigning on behalf of the opposition, I think that could really help the opposition gain a much broader spectrum of voters than it ever has in previous elections, whether it's left or right, Islamist or secularist, Kurd or Turk, I think they have a winning formula.
0: Bringing us back to the question of free and fair elections, Merve, what role, if any, do you see for the international community, whether it's Turkey's partners and allies, international organizations, or civil society groups, when it comes to ensuring the integrity of these elections?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. I think there is a, actually a vital role for the international community at this point, especially multilateral institutions that Turkey is part of, you know, like the OSCE and even the Council of Europe and you know the EU, which Turkey you know wants to be you know, a part of still, but also Turkey's democratic allies like the United States. That's because, as you mentioned, you know there are huge challenges as we talked about facing the opposition. But we do want to ensure that it is at least fair, um, meaning that people's votes will be tallied correctly on the night of the election. Be Opposition in Turkey is trying to put together a huge group of volunteers that will basically man up each and every polling station on the night of the election in order to do basically a shadow tallying to make sure that the official results match what their own records. Turkey's civil society is also already engaged in a massive effort to try to recruit volunteers to also become election observers. But I think what will really boost these efforts ultimately is going to be the ability of Turkey to have international election monitors on the nights of the election. I think the presence of foreigners and international observer missions will be really key, not only to boost the morale and confidence of the Turkish people who will be doing this election monitoring, but also to provide extra pressure on government-appointed ballot box officials, you know, not to engage in any fraud. Turkey has, in previous elections, invited these observers, so they haven't, you know, said, you cannot come. If they try to do so in this upcoming election, it will kind of be a new thing, a new low for the Turkish government. But that is something that President Erdogan might want to do, given, you know, the high stakes. So I think the role, role for governments like the U.S. government or Congress Uh, What they could play in the lead up to this election is to make it very clear to their Turkish counterparts that every single interaction they have with them, how important it is for this mission to be accepted into Turkey, to be invited, that it would really cast a major shadow over the integrity of the elections and the legitimacy of the elections if Turkey suddenly decides not to invite international observers. So well, that's one thing they could do. Um, you know, and in general, I think it's very important for Turkey's democratic allies to keep reminding the Turkish government that they are watching these elections very closely. You know, everybody understands that the stakes are really high and the integrity of the election is going to be extremely important moving forward for Turkey's relationships with Turkey's democratic allies like the United States, like Germany, like France. And so the Turkish government should really ensure that this cannot be a blatantly stolen election in any way. And so uh, we do not want to see instances, uh, you know, like either Turkish volunteers or international observer missions being obstructed from their duties by any way on the night of the election. We do not want to see things like social media access restrictions or bans in Turkey. A few days following the tragic earthquake, Turkey made a, a shocking, shocking decision to shut down access to Twitter and to other social media. We don't want to see a similar situation on the night of the election uh, when, you know, independent election observers are trying to coordinate their efforts and uh, raise awareness about what's happening on the ground through the use of social media. So that's again something that I think Turkey's democratic allies could warn the Turkish government against not to do and, and the importance of all this for, you know, in the eyes of the world and the international community that these minimal things are very important for us to be able to consider these elections legitimate and largely free and therefore democratic. I think there's a huge role for the international community to play in the lead up to the election. Of course, on the night of the election, I do hope that, you know, European allies and transatlantic allies will be, in fact, following what's happening on the ground in Turkey very, very closely and will be able to react quickly uh, should there be any let's say, undemocratic reaction by the Turkish government.
0: Merve, speaking of any undemocratic reactions from the government, you know, this is the first time that there will be elections in the new presidential system. So the transition of power hasn't been tested yet in this format. Will Erdogan hand over power if he loses?
1: Um, as other analysts and Turkey experts always say this is the million dollar question. I mean, look, it is a fact that President Erdogan is a pretty autographic leader. It's, you know, very difficult to imagine him, should he lose the election, voluntarily give up that seat. There is a lot at stake for him. You know, not only is he looking at this election, it will be the centennial of the Turkish Republic. This fall, he wants to be Presiding over Turkey when Turkey reaches that centennial, he has grand designs for Turkey's future that he wants to implement in this next hundred years of the Turkish Republic. So not only does he really, really want this, he is also quite afraid of not being in power in Turkey moving forward because, you know, he has committed So many human rights abuses presided over so much corruption in the last 20 years over Turkey that he is likely going to be facing a lot of pushback from Turkish people and the new Turkish government should there be an opposition-led government in Turkey and potentially some criminal investigations and lawsuits. So, you know, I don't think it's going to be easy for him to leave that said it's also hard for me to imagine what exactly he could do in order to try to hold on to power one way i can see this happening is that if the election results are very close he might try to say that you know that the vote count was not correct and for xyz reasons and you know force a second round of elections two weeks later on may 28th so that's something he could do if he loses that election again with a small margin And in this case, I think a small margin would be anything below 2%. He could try to say that there was fraud, sort of like the way President Trump tried to do, and that the vote counting process was not correct, and try to force, you know, another re-election, then basically not accept the result. If he does that, I think the opposition, if they believe that they have won fair and square, of course, they will want to mobilize their supporters to the streets in mass protest. And I do think people will go to the streets for a mass protest. Now, in that moment, will President Erdogan use security services under his command to go and disperse these protesters in a violent manner? How much violence will he be willing to use against protesters? I can't see, you know, as authoritarian as Turkey has become uh, in recent years, I really can't. Imagine a scenario where the Turkish army goes on and shoots at protesters, you know, the way you see in Iran or the way you would expect in Egypt. I mean, Turkey doesn't seem that kind of a country. If such a thing were to happen, I think it would be pretty uh, shocking for everyone in and outside of Turkey. The police have, of course, used violence against protesters before it has been doing so since 2013. You know, again, used violence against women who are marching, feminists who are marching for. International Women's Day. So, you know, they have a propensity to use violence against protesters. So I think that's a more likely scenario. And, you know, the interior ministers today, Soylu, who controls the police force, you know, really hates civil society. But even so, you know, we have seen the police have been using extreme tactics like tear gas, water cannons, rubber bullets, But again, I don't see them shooting actual bullets at people. And I think Turkish civil society is so resilient, and I think they expect a degree of violence at this point. Should they go to the streets, they always are used to it at this point. I think they will still take to the streets in spite of this very real threat. And, uh, you know, I don't know that they won't resist this really fiercely if they believe that their electoral will is trying to be forcefully taken away from them. Uh, You know, in spite of all issues we've had with Turkish democracy in the past 100 years, the one thing Turkish people have become really used to is having democratic elections. I mean, the most minimal aspect of a democracy is that you have elections and that the outcome of the elections will be tolerated. So I think, you know, it's likely that there will be unrest and I think, again, the international community has a role to play here, especially if there is great pressure coming from Turkey's democratic allies. You know, if President Biden and a Chancellor Schulz intervene at that point and, you know, make calls to Erdogan, asking him to, you know, that they expect a peaceful transition of power at that point, I think that could also put a lot of pressure, if not on President Erdogan himself, then on other parts of the Turkish bureaucracy to make sure that there will be a transition. So that's my relatively optimistic, positive take on this question, I guess.
0: (laughs) Merve, uh, we'll have a lot to be looking into over the next couple of months. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure.
0: In other news, Cyprus will earmark 2% of gross domestic product to defense spending in line with other EU member states as a means to strengthen the country's foreign policy bargaining power, President Nikos Kisadolidis said on Friday. Kisadolidis told reporters after a visit to a special forces training camp that he aims to put Cyprus, among other countries like Greece and France, at the core of a recent EU push to bolster the bloc's deterrent capabilities and defense infrastructure. I also served as foreign minister, and I know that without strong deterrent force, without a strong defense— your sane foreign policy matters is clearly limited, said. Finally, the chairperson of the British Museum has said it is worth trying to work with Greece to see if the Parthenon sculptures can be seen both in London and Athens, while treasures currently in Greece could be seen by new audiences in London. In his diaries column in the Spectator magazine, George Osborne said that the London Museum is exploring with the Greeks whether there's a way to solve this 200 year old dispute over the sculptures which were removed by Lord Elgin from Athens from 1801 to 1812. He was also critical of recent remarks by former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who said that returning the sculptures to Athens would be an infamy of infamies. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in.